We're going to be in John chapter 16 this morning. So if you have a Bible, feel free to open it up to John chapter 16. There are some black Bibles in the chairs in front of you that look like this. If you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you, take it home. It's our gift to you. It's one of the greatest gifts that someone has ever given me is a Bible. And we would love to pass on this gift as well. Um, So we're going to be on page 903 in that Bible. And if you will, would you please stand with me as I read God's Word. All right, we're in John 16, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that you will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have overcome the world. That you came as the Prince of Peace. And Lord, as we we celebrate you here this Advent season, as we take a break from traditionally going through the book of Genesis, uh, to, to peer into what you had, your disciples, what you had for them that evening. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we would have not only a greater understanding of what true biblical peace is, but how we can have peace with you. Lord, I pray for those in here who do not have peace. I pray for those who do not have peace because they have yet to put their faith in you. And Lord, I pray for all of us who amidst the anxiousness of life, through the tribulations of life, do not have peace. Lord, we ask that you would show up, that you would build up your church here this morning, and that you would be honored. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Okay. Imagine the scene. You're a first century Hebrew. You live in the region of Judea. Your job, shepherd of sheep. And you're hanging with other shepherds and their sheep. Can you imagine this? Of course not. But stick with me. Late one night, you're keeping watch over your flock. It's dark. All you can really see is the vast amount of stars above your head. The murmurs of bleeding sheep fill your ears. But it's become background noise for the thoughts in your head. And then all of a sudden, the brightest light 
you've ever experienced appears. You're blinded by it as your heart jumps. You begin to open your eyes, but it's very difficult because something is there. Something that is so bright that it's hard to focus. But then your pupils, they dilate. And you begin to see what's surrounding you is in fact an angelic being in your presence. It's smiling, glowing, prepared to speak. Your response? Terrified. What was a silent night with your flock has suddenly shifted and now you are in the presence of an angel and the glory of God is shining right in front of you. This angel opens its mouth and reassures you. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And there will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And your response, like, wait, what? As you try to gather your thoughts, a baby born, okay, wrapped in swaddling cloths, in a manger like a horse trough? But where? The city of David. Oh, that's right, Bethlehem. We're close by there. But he's a savior. The Christ, the long-awaited Messiah? You're giving me this message for all people? And then you come back to your blinding senses and you realize you're not alone. The angelic presence in front of you is not just one, but many. And now you're surrounded, surrounded by this heavenly host of angels. And in unison, they sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. How might you respond to that situation? that night. Well, for these shepherds, they went and they found that baby. They found that sign, that sign of the baby in the manger. And they told everything that, they, that had just happened to them, to Mary, to Joseph, and everyone else. And they praised God for experiencing with their own eyes the Prince of Peace. But they also praised him for the experience of peace that he brought into their lives. So peace on earth. That's what was promised that night amongst those shepherds. And if you uproot yourself from first century Judea and put yourself in modern day northern Colorado, how's that peace on earth working out for you? How's that peace on earth working out for all of us? You take a look around, it's pretty easy to get disheartened by the lack of peace in our culture as well as our daily lives. But in order to understand peace, we have to understand it not from a political perspective. And we also can't merely understand it from an emotional experience. No, we have to understand peace in light of Jesus. You see, many people define peace as an absence of conflict. And while there's an element of truth to that definition of peace, the type of peace that Jesus brings is much richer, 
much fuller, much more complete than that definition. And in light of Jesus overcoming the world, today we're going to get a glimpse of the peace of Christ. So here's what we're going to talk about today. In order to have peace within and peace with others, we must first have peace with God. In order to have peace within and peace with others, we must first have peace with God. And so those are my three points. We're going to talk about having peace with God, peace within, and peace with others. So, peace with God. First point here. As we come to our passage, we preached through the Gospel of John over the last two years. And we culminated that on Easter of this year. And whether you were with us or not, let me just remind all of us that the Gospel of John was written to a non-Jewish audience. And it was authored by one of Jesus' closest companions, the Apostle John. And we see at the very beginning of the book that Jesus is magnified and he's also personified as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And hopefully, echoes of Genesis 1 are ringing in our ears. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus was there, and He created everything out of nothing. And then in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word flesh, it's an interesting one. The Latin word incarne is actually where we get this from. The Latin word incarnate literally means meat or flesh. And so the God of the universe came to dwell among us. He had skin, he had bones, he had flesh. Such humility, such wonder, the creator of the universe, fully divine, yet fully and humbly a human so that we can have peace with God. And so, the context of our passage here today, we're in the upper room discourse. We're in the tail end of Jesus' last words to his closest companions. And he wants his last words to be lasting. So, in verse 25, it says that Jesus is using figures of speech. And he's used these all throughout this upper room discourse. If you remember in John 14, he says, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. It's a metaphor for heaven, our true home with God. Also in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. In order for us to bear fruit in our lives, we as the branches need to be connected to the life source, the vine. Another metaphor. And most recently in chapter 16, he talks about his departure. His departure is to bring sorrow. And much like a woman who's in labor and sorrow has come upon her, that sorrow does turn into joy when that baby comes. And his disciples, their sorrow will turn into joy when Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus was a master teacher with metaphors. And before he departs here, before he heads to the cross to die innocently 
for your sin and for my sin. He comforts his disciples. And he comforts them with God's loving plan of redemption. Look with me at verse 28. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So, he came from the Father. He existed before the foundations of the world. And he's come into the world. The humility of the incarnation that we're celebrating. And now he's leaving. Now he's about to leave them and the world. And what this refers to is the atoning death that he is going to pay on the cross. And he's going to the Father. After three days, he will rise from the dead. And then 40 days later, he will ascend into heaven, sit down at the Father's right hand where he's at right now, interceding for you and interceding for me. This plan of redemption that God set forth before eternity passed, it was to bring us peace. Peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. But how do you know if you're pleased with God? How do you know if God is pleased with you? And that's the fundamental question that we all long to answer. Is God pleased with me? Are we good? Is there peace between us? Well, we know because the Bible has told us that we can have peace with God. We can and you can. You can confidently answer that question. Jesus was baptized. And when he was, the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. The clouds separated and a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God is pleased with Jesus. And he's also pleased with every single person who's united to him by faith. And this, this faith, this is the great doctrine of justification. A legal standing. A legal term. And it's on this doctrine that the church stands. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This objective reality of peace that we can confidently have, peace with God, everyone wants it. But not everyone has it. But you can and this is what makes Christianity vastly different from all the other religious systems that are out there. You see, Christianity says you are accepted and therefore you obey. Whereas world religions say you obey and then you get acceptance. But in Christianity, Jesus obeyed on our behalf. And when we believe in him, peace with God acceptance, approval. You are welcomed into his family. And then we obey out of joy, out of goodness. So when we are accepted, we are no longer enemies and rebels. No, we have peace with him. But again, this peace is different from the world's peace. You see, the world says with peace, there's this absence of conflict. No, but Christian peace, it's not merely that 
there's absence of conflict with God. No, God takes the extra step and has a relationship with us. He welcomes us into his family. We have a seat at his table from enemy to child of God. That's the biblical picture. That's the fuller, the richer, the shalom peace in the Bible. And it's much more holistic than anything we could think of. The psalmist says in Psalm 29.11, May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. And it's from this verse that we named our first son Solomon, whose name actually means peace. And just so you know, in case you were wondering, we didn't name him after King Solomon and his noble character in the Bible. Um, he may have started out that way, but it didn't end out good. No, we, may, we named our son Solomon because we want him to know the peace that comes from God. And we pray that for him. And not only for him, we want him to share that peace with others. We want his life to demonstrate the peace that he and our family has with God because of our faith. <laughs> and that little five-year-old, we, we already see seeds of faith sprouting up in his life. It's pretty cute. But more than that, we see him sharing that peace with other people. We see him inviting people around, talking to them about Jesus, and our five-year-old's a little evangelist. It's crazy. How about for you? Do you know this peace with God? Are you in right standing with Him? Or have you been trying to earn it by your obedience? You can know that peace here today. You can know that peace this Advent season. In every single Advent season until the second Advent when Jesus comes back to judge the world. And those that know His peace, there's no fear. But if you do not know that peace, please know judgment is coming. It will be severe. And that's why we exist. The crossing exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ. The goal isn't just to get people here on Sunday mornings. No, the goal is to bring this message of peace to a world that desperately needs it and longs for it. And it is once we have this peace with God that we can truly have peace within. And that leads me to our second point this morning. Peace within. So, in verse 29 of the passage, Jesus' disciples have this, ah, we get it, moment. They say, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. And it's like a light bulb went off in their head. It all makes sense now. Not quite. Jesus sets the record straight here. He says, do you now believe? You are literally moments away from scattering. Moments away from abandoning me and leaving me alone. And what Jesus is pointing out is that though they are confessing something with their mouth, their lives are portraying and going to portray something very different. And what he's pointing out here is a major disconnect. A disconnect in what they say and a disconnect in what they do. And we have the same problem. Tim Chester, author of our Porterbrook material that many of you are, are walking through, he pointed this out to us. He said that there are areas of unbelief still in our heart. 
Someone may claim that they believe in justification by faith alone, confessional faith. But then on Monday morning, they're trying to prove themselves to anyone and to everyone in their workplace. There's a disconnect. That is functional disbelief. Likewise, some may affirm that God is sovereign, confessional faith, that God is in control. But anxiousness ensues when things that they cannot control come about in their lives and the functional unbelief. And there's a whole lot of other ways that this plays out in our lives. But notice that when Jesus confronts them here with their unbelief, that he doesn't drill them. He doesn't just blast them. No, what he says here is some of the most kind and hopeful words in a moment of confrontation of unbelief. Verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's calling his disciples to a confessional faith that impacts their daily life. And it is then, and only then, when that gap is closed between your confessional faith and how you live your life, that we will experience peace. You see, there's two aspects to peace. There's an objective aspect, and there's a subjective aspect. The objective aspect, it's kind of like the world's definition. It's a state of affairs between two parties where once there was previously hostility, but now it's marked by peace. And from that flows the subjective. It's the feeling of the heart. It's the emotional tranquility that comes. And it's subjective because the the type of peace that you might experience might be very different from the type of peace that I experience. But... We can know and we can let this peace rule in our hearts when we embrace the objective truths of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. I have peace with God because of faith. And therefore, I don't have to prove myself in the workplace. I don't have to prove myself on my resume. I don't have to prove myself with my job or lack thereof. Jesus has overcome the world. We look to him to give us peace, not our circumstances. He is the triumphant victor. He's interceding for you and me at the right hand of the Father. We can have confidence that not a sparrow falls to the ground without our Father in heaven or Jesus knowing it. Jesus knows the very number of hairs that are on your head. We can take great confidence in who our God is and have peace from Him. He cares for you in your trials, in your trouble, and in your tribulation. This last year, it's, it's been difficult for us as a church family. We've experienced a lot of anxiousness, turmoil. Some of us have lost jobs. Some of us have gotten sick. Uh, Death has impacted many of us, whether it's miscarriage or parents or family members. Some of these people have known Jesus and some of them have not. There's also been relationships 
that have been fractured, that have been broken here in this church. But amidst all these tribulations, we can still have peace within. And if you're in the battle right now, if you're not currently experiencing peace within, let me just point you to one of my favorite verses. And one of the greatest verses on peace in all of the Bible. It's Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Many of you know it. But do you experience it? Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's what you're supposed to do. Present your request to God. And notice what follows. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. God wants us to cry out to him. God wants us to rely on him. And he also wants us to know the peace that surpasses all understanding. But notice here in John 16, as well as Philippians 4, God doesn't promise us deliverance from the trial, the trouble, the tribulation. No, he promises us peace. Let me give you an example. Just this week, preparing for this sermon, I felt behind all week felt like I was behind the eight ball. It was hard to pick a direction and just go with it. Lack of peace. Uh, fear, anxiousness, worst sermon ever, all sorts of thoughts like that coming through. But then I was meditating more on peace and, and I realized that what I was really asking God for was that I'd be done with the sermon and it'd be Sunday afternoon and I'd be able to go home and eat lunch with my family and maybe take a nap. I was looking for deliverance from this trial of my unpreparedness in my sermon. I wasn't looking for peace. Now, that may seem petty to you, especially in light of the trial that you're going through. But please know that God cares for us, whether how big the trial is or how small it is. And he wants us to have peace. So many of you, you have been claiming Philippians 4, 6, and 7. You have been crying out to God. And you're still searching for this peace. Let me just encourage you, as you're doing that, two things. One, be thankful for the trial that you're in. Because it's an opportunity for His mercy to reign in your life. And be thankful also for the times that He's brought you through trials, tribulation. He is faithful. He will do it again. But as you are thankful and as you are letting your request be made known to God, just make sure your aim isn't deliverance from the trial. That's not what we're promised. We're promised peace. Deliverance may not be available on this side of eternity. It's, it's just not guaranteed to us. But one day, when Jesus does return, there will be deliverance. There will be no more tears, no more death, and we will celebrate with our King as we have peace with Him. So as we wait, we seek peace from God to give us peace within. And we will wait for a second coming and we will wait for that deliverance. So that leads me to my third point here this morning. If 
final destination, peace with others. Okay. One of the biggest tribulations that we can face here in our life in this world is a lack of peace with others, especially with those that we've had a deep relationship with and that we love. I think of the context of our passage. Jesus, he's with his disciples, and one of them, Judas, has already gone out. He's already gone out to betray him. And this band of brothers was about to be broken, about to be fractured from one act of sinful selfishness from one person. But notice this doesn't phase Jesus. It doesn't rob him of his joy, nor does it rob him of his peace. No, he knew who his betrayer was, and he washed his feet. Romans 12, 18 says, So as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. Knowing the pain, knowing the agony, knowing the betrayal he was literally moments away from experiencing. He lived at peace with Judas, as well as with his disciples who were about to leave him. But that's because he saw beyond the selfishness. He saw beyond what was going to be accomplished through the cross. He saw the peace of God was going to do in their life, as well as through their lives, as they began the church. And after Jesus goes to the cross, dies, buried in a tomb, and rises from the dead, he appears to his disciples. And the first words he says to them is, peace be with you. Peace be with you. So we see the lasting words of Jesus are a promise of peace, and his first words post-resurrection are a promise of peace among them. Peace, many of you know, is a fruit of the Spirit laid out in Galatians chapter 5. And earlier, before the Apostle Paul lists out the fruit of the Spirit, he encourages the Galatian church to watch out, that they do not bite and devour one another. And then he has a list of the works of the flesh. And he uses words like strife, fits of anger, rivalry, divisions, envy, jealousy. These are characteristics that are not marked by peace among men, but rather sin, selfishness, self-interest. And that's where the call in Romans twelve eighteen to live peaceably with all. As, long, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Romans fourteen nineteen. pursue what makes for peace. Essentially, make every effort that you can as far as it depends on you. So how do we pursue this type of peace? Well, I've got four steps for you. If you're a note taker, get that pen ready. One of my greatest Bible teachers, favorite Bible teachers, Jerry Bridges, helped me think through this. So here's four steps to pursue peace among people. This is primarily in the church, but I think it has overlap. I think it has context for our entire life and relationships. So first off, within the church, we must remember that we are members with one another. The person you're sitting next to is just as big of a body part as you are here in this church. We belong to one another. And we must remember that we are one body 
We are Christ's body. And that's my second point. So as we remember our identity as a body, we do it not for our own interests, but for His glory. And that might be assumed, but I have to say it because oftentimes when we pursue peace, we do it out of self-interest. We do it because we don't like how the tension feels in our, in our own heart. No, we pursue peace for the glory of God. Third, in order to have peace, we have to own our wrongs. We have to own our response and our role that has brought about the tension with others. We're so prone to look to other people, oh, if they didn't do this, or it's all their fault, and we deal in these ultimate terms. But the majority of the time, both sides have a a role that they've played. Both sides have been wronged. And as far as it depends on you, own what you've done and repent of it. And finally, we are to take the initiative to restore peace. It's on everyone. Whether you've been wronged or you're the wronger. Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 make it clear it does not matter. It is your responsibility, though, to take the initiative to pursue peace. Now, just going to give a clarifying clarifier here. Uh, the type of peace that I'm calling us to, that the New Testament calls us to, this isn't a peace at all costs. The reality is, is there's been much injustice in relationships. There's been much sin, and that has not been dealt with. On this side of eternity, there might not be the possibility of a restoration of relationships. And it pains me to, to say that up here because there's, there's a real reality of that going on in our church right now. Because of the injustice. Because of the sin. But as far as it depends on you, own what you have and live at peace with others. And let us remember, we cannot take matters into our own hands though. We're not here to bring justice And we're not here to bring about the restoration of peace. We leave it up to the mercy of God for that. Oftentimes, peace with others can be restored though. I've seen it here in this church. I've seen it in marriages. I've seen it with relationships, with parents and their children, in life groups. Peace can be restored. Let us take hope. The evidence that we have peace with God, both in a righteous standing in our faith, as well as a genuine peace that we pursue amongst one another, will have a lasting impact in the world around us. When we pursue this type of peace, the world will know that we love Jesus and that he is the Prince of Peace. And so we are to pursue peace as far as it depends on us and to trust in him for the result of that relationship. Probably that relationship that you're maybe thinking about right now. So in light of those four steps by way of application, who is that person? Who is that person? What do you need to own up and turn from in your own life? And what will it look like to take that initiative of peace?
And so, in closing, we're in the middle of Advent season. Let us remember the peace that we have with God because Jesus has overcome the world. Let us also remember the peace that we're called to pursue. And often it will take faith in our hearts as well as faith in our steps. Faith in our works to pursue this type of peace. It's a patient process. But as we have peace with God through our faith with Him, we can have peace within as well as peace with others. We are to be patient in this pursuit as we face tribulations and trouble in life, but let us take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And one day he will return to establish peace on earth, among whom with those he is pleased. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your son Jesus and the peace that he has brought. Lord, I do ask as uh, your word has gone forth, would you help us by your spirit to bear fruit? Lord Jesus, let us look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Lord, let us uh, be renewed afresh this Advent season of the peace that you've brought. But as we look around in the world around us and the various tribulations, let us also remember that you are going to come again and you will establish peace finally among all of us with whom you are pleased. And so Lord, I pray if there's someone here who does not have peace with you, Lord, I pray that they would pursue that first and foremost before they pursue peace with others. And Lord, we ask just that you would continue to work in their hearts and in all of our hearts to bring about peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.